0: welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. As we turn our Bibles again to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to pick up About where we left off yesterday, uh, I believe it's a little curious how the topics uh, from last week's overview, uh, the timing of the rapture, the the great apostasy, uh, the identity of the man of sin, uh, these topics we become extremely passionate about, very defensive over, even though most Christians will acknowledge that complete agreement in these things is not essential to salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not important. Actually, I believe they're very important. But by comparison, verses 2 through 5 in chapter 1 from our passage today, uh, they usually get little attention and are easily overlooked. But the reality is the knowledge supplied within these verses actually is essential to salvation. We must agree on the evidence contained within to accurately identify ourselves as Christians. This is because the passage supplies crucial evidence to what Christians refer to as the Trinitarian Godhead. That is, that there simultaneously exist three co-equal and co-eternal persons of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yet God exists as only one deity. There's only one God. And the church has, throughout its history, been in agreement that God being three in one is essential for salvation. Since that day of Pentecost, that is when the Holy Spirit was given, was sent by Christ to regenerate and permanently indwell the hearts of believers, he has served as our divine teacher and he guides us into all truth. The Christian church has always believed that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each God, but that there remains only one God you're a Christian today, your conversion to Jesus Christ by faith was a Trinitarian conversion. A Trinitarian conversion. I will explain that a little later. Now this doesn't infer that Christians have always referred to God with the word Trinity. The term Trinity did not come into use until an early church father named Tertullian. Tertullian, he used it in a letter he wrote in 213 AD. Uh, but it was not adopted into common usage or official usage until what we call the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. That is where we get the Nicene Creed that very carefully delineates the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In fact, it would have been a great day for the Lord's Supper today. We could have recited the Nicene Creed along with this. And Christians have never claimed, however, this word Trinity comes from the Bible. That's an accusation that we have, have to be able to field from people that the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. We've never claimed that the word Trinity appears in the Bible. Instead, we claim that we use it as a term, a term we utilize to describe what is revealed as clearly evident about God in the Bible we also use it the Trinity to distinguish true believing or what we sometimes call orthodox correct believing Christians we use this term to distinguish Christians from heretics who don't quite honestly quite honestly and for these purposes the word Trinity has over the centuries it has served its purposes pretty well quite well I realize that term heresy, it may sound uh, unduly provocative, but it is not too strong when it comes to this doctrine. It is not too strong for this discussion. The church has always used the word heresy to describe a doctrinal error, a doctrinal error that is so egregious that it is damning. You, You can't be wrong on this. And the internet, you know, it it places so much false teaching right at our fingertips. Directly in front of our eyes. That it is crucial, not only for us, but for our children. Our children who are with us today. That we all be reminded that unequivocally to deny God as co-eternal and co-existent as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is damning. It is damning. It is better for our youth to hear this declaration before they leave home, before they enter college, or before they enter the workplace, because they're going to be exposed to all kinds of bogus religious stuff. All true Christians are Trinitarian. Um... Now that, that declaration that declaration doesn't demand that we fully understand that we completely understand how God shares one spiritual essence and and one divine nature yet also exists eternally as three distinct centers of consciousness. It's mind-boggling. I doubt the human mind could ever fully comprehend the majesty of God. But to keep it plain and simple, one source that I read describes the trinity like this. God is only one what? But he is three who's. Alright? God is only one what? But he is three who's. Who can fathom the depths of the mysteries of God? And as we discover in our in our early scripture reading from John chapter 16, the Spirit was given to the church to, to guide us into all truth, to lead us into truth and understanding. And therefore, as I read to us now from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, this will be verses 2 through 5, it is by the Holy Spirit's illumination that we can discern the evidence of the three-in-one Trinitarian Godhead clearly as revealed in this passage. I'll read that for us now as Paul writes to the church. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of God and Father, knowing beloved brethren, or brethren beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Very much like we observe in Peter's opening of, the, of 2 Peter. His opening greeting. Here Paul extends his love to some people who have received the same truth like ours. Peter says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ, He says, grace and peace. Peter refers to Jesus as both God and Savior. Immediately afterwards, he says this grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus. So, after referring to Jesus as God and Savior, Peter then quickly distinguishes there are two. But he writes more. As we pay attention to Peter, it's not just two. We continue to see the triune Godhead unfold uh, just a few verses later in 2 Peter. There the apostle refers to God in plurality again when he writes, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's Jesus' majesty, his divine majesty. And Peter says, For when he, meaning Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, (coughs) such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. He said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, we are told. This is the event that Peter uh, describes as the Mount of Transfiguration. And after Peter states that we as apostles, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, eyewitnesses to God the Father, verbally bestowing honor and glory upon his Son, Peter then concludes, he says, our prophecy to you, our prophecy of scripture that is written to you. He said said it was never made by an act of the human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Most of us know Most of us already realize that there's evidence of the Trinity again prominent at Jesus' baptism. Uh, We're like, why, why do you keep bringing this up again and again? It's because our children. Because of newer Christians. Because of visitors. And I should probably read that as well. It's recorded in all four Gospels. And the record in Mark, or or, excuse me, Matthew, states that at Jesus' baptism by the forerunner, John the Baptist, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and it was lighting upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Somewhat, slightly regrettable that we have to so persistently defend this doctrine against attack. Because because there are threads of the Holy Spirit, uh, of the Trinity, and the deity of the Holy Spirit. They're stitched throughout all of Scripture. You you find it everywhere. It's It's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Every book you go to in the New Testament, it is very clear. um, In this regard, it's almost like the sovereignty of God over our salvation. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. That's how God chooses and, and predestines those who are saved unto salvation. Once you see God's providence in Scripture... You can't unsee it because the divine threads, those threads of sovereignty are stitched everywhere. Oh look, there it is, verse 4. After extending grace and peace in verse 1, and then offering, offering God thanksgiving in prayer in verse 2, Paul begins in verse 3, By constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. In our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing beloved brethren, uh, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. If you are brethren and if you are beloved by God... It is because God has chosen you. Remember Jesus told his disciples. You have not chosen me, but I chose you. God does the choosing. And if you're holding your hand in your hand a King James or a New King James version. Uh, you will see that that word choice there is elect. It's translated Election in the King James. Uh, That is because the Greek term, the Greek term indicates a deliberate act by God of choosing. God chooses. We who are beloved by God are His chosen elect. What a privilege. Now we need to understand, please understand. That being God's elect does not suggest that God saw something attractive about us. Like a candidate. And so God filled out a ballot and he cast his vote for us. Hoping in the end, you know, we might pull off a squeaker of an upset. That's not what the term election represents in scripture. The term election represents a sovereign act of God's choosing apart from any willful contribution of our own we don't we don't contribute there's nothing attractive about us that makes God say well I really think I need to go after that one no we're but a vapor our works are like filthy rags nothing attractive about us it is 100% God's grace in salvation he has bestowed it upon beggars. The meaning of the word, the English word election today has, has been become so warped by politics. Um, this, this is one of the reasons, as you see, the more modern translations uh, use the word chosen rather than elect. Uh, but the word literally means God chose you a note in the Expositor's Bible commentary states that the Greek construction in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it suggests that their election is something that happened in the distant past. It's not something at the moment of their recent conversion, but in fact, God's choice was made long before their conversion. Think about that. That sounds a whole lot like Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, which states, Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. God did it. James 1 verse 18 states, In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. Just as Romans 9 verse 16 assures that God's choice for salvation does not depend, quote, does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, in the one who works at it, but it depends only on God who has mercy. In that same passage, God declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That means we are completely saved by grace. No contribution by our own merit. Folks, if our heart is humble, and we truly see ourselves as recipients of grace, that that shouldn't chafe us. It really should not chafe us. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it ever state that God won't interfere with the human will. Never says that. Scripture never suggests that in our sinful depravity, our spiritual deadness before conversion, that we exercise free will. Scripture never says that. Rather, it suggests our will is held captive to sin. A theologian named Martin Luther wrote a book all about it. It's, it's called The Bondage of the Will. We're controlled by sin before knowing Christ, everything in our mind is sinful. But then Christ, being merciful and gracious, came that he might set the captives free. Scripture assures that like channels of water, the Lord will turn the king's heart wherever he wishes. And in Romans 9, verse 18 concludes, So then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You know, I realize most of us have heard this or or been taught this, at one time or another, whether we agree with it or not, or agree with Scripture or not, Uh, but to provide a little clarity again for our children, for our young people, for new converts to Christianity, new visitors to this church, free will theology. The idea that by our own volition, by our own will, by our own free will, that we have decided to follow Jesus... Well, God sits on the sidelines rooting for us, but uninvolved, merely watching. Folks, it's scripturally indefensible. It's indefensible. God is intimately involved in salvation. In every aspect of salvation. He is sovereign in making his choice concerning who he shall save. God the Spirit brings conviction of sins. God the Spirit regenerates the heart at the hearing of the good news. And you know what? With you guys, this isn't even fun. This isn't even fun. Because you, you've bought, most of you bought election and predestination. It's pretty much like preaching to the choir. is isn't even any fun anymore. I guess there's not anything new in this Bible for us. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I think I see something. You all knew that there was a a but coming, didn't you? This is a big one. This is a big one. Because our passage has much more to say about being chosen. In, In fact, You might not have known before today with 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that these letters make more mention of God's sovereignty and election than any other books in the New Testament. More than Ephesians, more than Romans. These books speak about sovereignty. But in case there are any hyper-Calvinists out there, if any of you are listening, in verses 3 through 5... What else do we see? Oh, we see trend, evidence of Trinity in salvation. You're thinking to yourself, well, he already said that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? No, this is a different Trinity in salvation. I mean, the pastor said there's another Trinity? This sounds like some kind of deviant doctrine or something. No, it's true. It's true. There's evidence of another trinity observed in the Bible and in this passage. Some theologians refer to it as the triad or the trinity of Christian virtues. Virtues mean proof of Christian character. Evidence of salvation in Christian character. Some of you are thinking, oh no. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, this is where the preaching gets a little bit of fun. Because the choir doesn't always sing along with this. It's real easy to say and to sing, Oh, the Bible says I'm chosen. What else does it say? It suggests brethren beloved by God, there better be some accompanying evidence that you're chosen. Because this same apostle Paul writes in First Corinthians, Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. First Corinthians thirteen thirteen. And the Apostle John writes The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is love, says John, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, it's a big word that simply means that when Christ died for our sins on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. He died for our sins. He took the punishment for our sins. But then John concludes, beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And if we love one another, God abides in us. The presence of the term if there indicates that this is a conditional clause. It's a condition. If we love one another... God abides in us. Therefore, since James, the Lord's brother, assures that even the demons believe, in order to distinguish us from the demons, there must be accompanying evidence of salvation. There must be accompanying evidence of salvation to assure that you are chosen. Not just that you believe you're chosen. You you can't just say I'm chosen. It's all finished. Bible says, so it's over, I'm done, I'm chosen. You can't say that. Because James also says that faith alone by itself if it has no works, it's dead. It's dead. And therefore, in writing to the Thessalonians, Paul in verse 2 gives thanks to God always for them, he says, for all of them. Why? The answer is found in verse 5. Why does Paul give thanks always for all of them? says, because the gospel did not come in word only. Think about that. The gospel didn't come in word only. It also came, he says, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Our scripture reading earlier revealed that this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whom Jesus sent to convict. To convict. To convict means to to supply evidence of being guilty. It's conviction. What does the Holy Spirit convict of? Well, in verse uh, John chapter 16 and verse 8, we read earlier, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Oh, wait. There's one more evidence of trinity and salvation. Sin, righteousness, judgment. He convicts the world concerning sin, says Jesus, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness... Because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. That means he can convict anyone. He's active in salvation. Thank God that man is not always as evil as he could be. Thank you, Lord, that the unbelievers on the planet fear God's judgment. They might not know God, but they fear being judged by a God that they do not know. God has provided man a conscience, and the Holy Spirit exercises a ministry of conviction, and that prevents the world from going into a complete tailspin. This is the common grace of God That God does not allow us to follow our depravity to its full extent. He pulls the reins in here and there. It's evidence of the common grace of God. But it has been rightly said that conviction does not equal conversion. Conviction does not equal conversion. But what kind of conviction did the Thessalonians experience? says the word of God came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The Holy Spirit came in full conviction. That means the conviction for man's sin, full conviction of Christ's righteousness. Conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness being Christ's righteousness and full conviction that God is going to judge the world now that conviction equals conversion a full conviction in Thessalonica we find evidences of three times trinity in their salvation father son and holy spirit sin righteousness and judgment and faith hope and love We're only in the book, five verses. But what functions as most crucial for Paul's rejoicing at how the gospel did not come to you in word only? What is most crucial? What does it mean that it did not come, the gospel did not come in word only? It implies what it suggests that for some the gospel has come in word only it's only words the gospel is received as words like the rocky soil no accompanying evidence of salvation and what functions as the scriptural evidence according to Paul why does Paul express such a high confidence, a supreme confidence in the gospel that had come to them both in power and with conviction? Can, can it be that he knows that they believe in the Trinity—Father, Son, and Spirit? You know, that's a conviction that God—that you can only know in the heart. Does the person believe in the Trinity? I don't. I can't see it, right? they may believe it so that doesn't work as a great visible evidence you can't see if someone believes in the father son and spirit they can say it you know we can recite the doctrine of the trinity together in the Nicene Creed I did so growing up as a youngster for years I would uh, recite that but I had no conversion of the heart I could say it But you couldn't visibly see it. Similar is true with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I can say I'm convicted of sin. I can say I'm convicted of Christ's righteousness. I can say I believe in God's judgment. But you can't see it. You can't see my conviction. What can we see? verse 3 states that we can see faith hope and love look with me one last time at verse 3 Paul writes I am constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ That is the evidence that Paul can see. That's the trinity of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. If you are beloved and chosen by God, if you are beloved and chosen by God, if you have received a full conviction of the Holy Spirit, and if you believe in the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that faith is going to become manifest in the three cardinal Christian virtues faith, hope, and love there is evidence of trinity in salvation true salvation becomes a work of faith and a labor of love a theologian named Bill Witherington the third, that's a good name Bill Witherington the third He's a, West, he's a Wesleyan Methodist he writes this these phrases to refer to the work that results from faith they refer to the work that results from faith the labor that results from love the labor that results from love and the steadfastness that comes from hope this is surely correct there are many theologians who agree and cite him Paul does not speak of a work that produces faith or a labor that produces love he speaks of a faith that produces work and labor out of love we're not saved by good works We're saved for good works. Therefore, in complete agreement with James, Paul expresses supreme confidence in the salvation of the Thessalonians who display a work of faith. Their faith produces works. Why? Because faith without works is dead. The same is true for their labor of love in Thessalonica. A genuine love for God is displayed in a love for God's people. That is the brethren beloved by God. A genuine love for God is displayed in a love for God's people. And it produces labor for their benefit. It is a labor of love. A labor of love. And complete, with complete agreement with James... And with Paul, the Apostle John writes this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, says John. We always think of James saying stuff like this. Little children, says John, do not let, lo- uh, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. You don't want the word of God and the gospel coming in word only. It must be followed by faith, hope, and love. For the one who is, does not love his brother whom he has seen, continues John, Cannot love God whom he has not seen. Example here, but he's probably going to dislike this. Do you know how I am supremely confident that Timmy Gunter has a genuine, saving faith in the one true God? Father, Son, and Spirit. You know how I know that? I can see it. I can see it. The gospel did not come to him in word only. Let that be said of every single one of us here. That the gospel didn't come in word only. Tim is Trinitarian. Trinitarian. And I can see the same is true with all who genuinely place their faith in Jesus Christ. Another theologian named G.L. Green writes this. The love of the Thessalonian believers expressed itself in hard, strenuous, and exhausting labor. Far from being simply an emotion, love sought the best for the other and labored for the other's benefit. I wrote this. Be careful. Persons who do not, through steadfast hope, persevere in work and labor, prove deficient of both faith and love. Persons who do not, through steadfast hope, persevere in work and labor, uh, prove deficient of both faith and love. You can't separate them. It's a work of faith and a labor of love. So does Paul indicate that you can actually see faith, hope, and love? Oh yeah. I can assure you that we can all see it. And it's not just a phrase to be be printed on a bracelet. Though that's cute. It's not just a phrase to have written on a bulletin board in our office the evidence of trinity in salvation is faith hope and love there is there's going to be much more said about this in these letters first and second Thessalonians uh, later on about working hard for the benefit of others for the sake of the church for for the sake of Christ's kingdom. And that, that is far enough for today. Um, but we are. We're going to discover of this church. That their labor was not only local. The word went out from them. In every direction. Their labor was diligent. They worked hard. They served. <laughs> and that brought in another set of problems. Whenever you have a majority who serve pulling the load and and working really hard, what else does it reveal? It reveals those who don't. It's going to reveal there are a few in this church who aren't working hard, but they're hardly working. In the Thessalonican church. That's another sermon for another text. Let's pray.